Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Kelly Driscoll. In this episode, you'll hear part two of my conversation with Sarah Zarellin, Assistant Director of the Writing Across the Curriculum Program at Appalachian State University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. I loved hearing about uh, how you kind of took over this website and uh, for the the school and um, had to just boots on the ground learn how to program in PHP and it sounds like fix fix some bugs might have been uh, your calling for a little while as as that was getting revised. <laughs> But it does sound like that experience made you, and you know, I think you might have been naturally kind of inclined to uh, explore and and take that on, where others might not have been that brave. Um, but because you did that and had the attitude of, you know, we're just going to get in there and move things around and figure out what works, um, has also been an asset to you in, in what you're doing now. And this kind of attitude of, well, you know, you can take this, but you have the opportunity to make it your own and that it may take some exploration and creativity and uh, experimentation to to do that but that's all part of the the learning as well so what year was it that you had um, taken over uh, the the website this was at University of Missouri is that right yeah, I think it was okay. 2008. I, I, cause I started my PhD in 2007. Um, so I think it was, yeah, I think it was 2008. Cause I, I had gotten to know my, you know, my office mate. And I, I say office mate, all the grad students were in one big room. We were like desk mates. Like we had to share, we were like sharing the same desk. So we had to like take turns yeah. using <laughs> the same space. Um, but yeah, I think it, it was 2008. Um, so it wasn't like lots of people were doing yeah. cool digital things at that point. I just wasn't like it was not it had not been part of my life prior to that moment and wasn't really something that I thought of myself as um, like being good at. Right. I never thought like, oh, I'm a tech person. Like I'm good at I'm, I, I have no sort of like mechanical engineering skills. If I take something apart, <laughs> it will never get put back together properly again and I that's how I kind of always thought about tech stuff right that like the I always thought of like the hardware aspect I never thought of you know the software aspect of it and and like what that looks like and then I I just sort of learned right that like actually I'm 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 good at breaking things and not worrying about it so the the stakes are just not that high right and they are for certain people I mean certainly you should never put me in charge of something that can't break because that those stakes would be way too high. Um, but I guess that's kind of my approach to learning. It's like the stakes shouldn't, they just shouldn't be that high. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're learning. So part, part of that process has to be failure. And I guess maybe back to your earlier question about how I use portfolios, that's always a really important part of 
the narrative that I ask students for both undergraduate students and graduate students is to think about um, where are the places that you're not doing as well as you had hoped or as you might have thought you would. Um, and I do a lot of reflection in connection mm-hmm. to life. And so a lot of assignment reflections are about, you know, what are you doing well? What are you not doing well? But also like what is happening in your life right now that might be distracting you um, or preventing you from sort of um, maybe putting in the time that you need, like maybe in order to to do this thing well, you need more time and you don't have it right now because you have other demanding classes and your work is really busy right now. Or um, a lot of students, you know, go through all kinds of personal loss when they're in college. And so kind of working through like, it could be anything from I just broke up with my, um, you know, my person to, you know, my my grandparent has died. And, you know, this was a person who I had all these very like early childhood relationships with. And I've had to leave them when I went away to college. And so now I'm like experiencing all these emotions about that. And so I think having giving students and portfolios give students a space to do this, right, to to make these kinds of connections between how is what how is what is going on in my personal life connected to what is going on in my student life? And how can I kind of bridge that gap to see myself as like a whole person who is all of these things happening together, not just this or just that? Yeah. And I think that for the students too to have that kind of connection uh, and space to reflect on, you know, it's the whole human experience that's part of the um, learning experience that they're having during the time at the institution. And very often um, students may not have had the opportunity to make those connections and, and realize how those are important for people around them to understand and know, but also for them to understand and know about themselves. And it's something that's going to continue to inform them if this is a practice that they continue, even when they get out into the workplace, you know, to have some pause and recognize, you know, okay, this project didn't go as well as I had hoped it would. (laughs) There are these things going on in my life right now. It doesn't mean that the next project that I'm going to do might have the same outcome. And get better at kind of communicating and, and recognizing when things are working well and when they're not. And um, that it's, you know, it's all part of the, the human experience. So I think it's wonderful that um, even at the institution that they're given that kind of space and time to use reflection for that, for that purpose. Yeah, I think it's it's really useful. Um, I, I used to teach the introduction to writing across the curriculum class a lot um, in in our rhetoric and writing studies program, and it was it's yeah it was always my favorite class to teach um, because it was thought of as a sophomore level class. Most students coming into it are in their second year, and they um, they tend to come into the class with this attitude of like, why, why do I have to take this? I've taken, I've been writing things since I started right. <laughs> kindergarten. Right? And um, I, like, I, I know how to write. Um, and this is another like general education requirement. 
when I just really want to get into my major classes, and I actually was thinking about this earlier when you asked about the aha moments for um, faculty, because what I loved about teaching this class was the aha moment for students, because I loved the class because they would come in with this kind of just second year attitude of like, I've got this, I know how to college now, like I'm comfortable in this space, I have confidence that maybe I didn't have as a first year student. And this class is really unnecessary for me. And not everybody felt that way, but a lot of them. And then as they moved through the semester, um, and they spent a lot of time on those reflections, and sometimes it was right, like, like coming to learn as a person that we all have to prioritize things. And we we make those choices. And so maybe it's true that actually um, you did not spend enough time doing research for this project because you prior- you prioritized your chemistry exam because you're a chemistry major. And you know what? Maybe that's okay. Like maybe that's, that is a trade-off that you've made in your prioritization. But what if you had thought about the research project differently and actually designed it so that it would help you study for your chemistry exam. Like that's another approach. And so, so much of that class was like teaching problem solving and like learning strategies in this way. And I would, I would get emails from students like the next semester or the next year that would say, thank you so much. I know I was kind of an ass during that class, um, but now I'm in like my psych methods course or I'm, um, you know, whatever the next kind of step was. And they're like, I, I am thinking so much. I'm using so many of the things that we did in that class. Um, and so it never, r- rarely did the aha moment happen during that semester. Occasionally it did. And that was always fun. Um, but it was like the future aha moments that would come via email or like note in my mailbox that I was always like, I love, that's the best feeling of like, I knew, I knew it was going to help you. And I just had to kind of wait it out. Right. Um, yeah. So, oh, yeah. well, and you know, it was a, a real pinnacle moment for them if they took time, even after the class is done to reach back out to you to say thank you, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was, I mean, it was always funny how they would position themselves. And I, you know, oftentimes, it wasn't students who I thought of as being particularly difficult, but in their heads, that's what they had been, right? Like they, they had been really resistant to the course. And I mean, occasionally that's what they felt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, yeah, I, those were great. Those yeah. were great. Are there moments. specific, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about your kind of approach to the, the reflections, but are there specific prompts that you give them to kind of help them get started with this type of reflection? Cause I can imagine for, Many of them, um, it's it could be the first time that they've really been asked anything of that nature within the context of a course. And I know in our work with the institutions that very often reflection in general is just something that students haven't really been asked to do. Yeah, reflection is hard and it's it's a skill, right? It's not something that most people do well automatically. Um and I think as I've aged, I think I've come to like recognize when I meet adults who are good at reflection, um, they just, they have a different perspective on their lives. So I try to talk to students about that sometimes because I, I think I was slow to come around to the idea that reflection was valuable 
I talked earlier about the introduction to teaching composition course that I took as a master's student. Um, and I, I was the resistant student in that class the whole semester. I mean, I did it right because I was, I was an overachiever. <laughs> I wanted to like make the teacher happy and do the right thing, but I was grumpy. You know, every day after class, I would say, "I don't, I don't understand why we have to do these things. Why are we writing multiple drafts? Why are we reflecting on our feelings and ideas?" Um, and so. Like I was that person. Um, and then, and I don't even know what my aha moment was, right? Except that it was like the next semester and I was really struggling. And I had that moment of like, oh, if I stop thinking about this as something that has to be perfect the first time, and if I start setting aside five or 10 minutes to, to just write down my thoughts about what I'm doing in relation to this thing, mm -hmm. that is actually helpful. Um, so, yeah shout out to Georgia Rhodes for that one. Cause she taught that class. And I, I was, I mean, I'm sure I was one of those students who was rolling my eyes when she was <laughs> explaining things to us, but it was sort of life-changing. And so I, I think about that when I'm teaching reflection. And I think about that when I'm talking to faculty about teaching reflection, because I think for a lot of disciplinary faculty, especially it can feel like an extra, an add on, um, a thing that is unrelated or too disconnected from the content of their course that they feel a lot of pressure to, to shove into one class, right? And that they're under, I think, a lot of pressure. Like students need to know all of this material by the time they leave my class. They don't have time for, for reflection. Or um, in other conversations I've had with people, for instance, we have a great first-year seminar program here, but it's largely taught by adjunct instructors. And so when you start talking to people about ref doing reflection and first year seminar, they say, oh, that's, that would just be one more thing that the teacher has to grade. And like, we don't want to add to the workload of faculty who we know are already being taken advantage of by the institution. Um, and so a huge part of that for when I'm in the classroom is, is helping students see reflection as central, right? Like to their learning, not as an add-on, not as busy work, um, but as really central. And so I do that by um, scaffolding it. So at the beginning of, so I do multiple kinds of reflection. I ask students, I do, we do weekly reflections and there's a list of, I think, 14 or 15 questions. And I, I tell them, you don't have to um, reflect on any of these, but if you need a guide, choose a few and, and just think about them and answer them. Um, and typically what I see is students start very rigidly at the beginning of the semester. And then as they become more comfortable with the process, because it is becoming more comfortable, like talking to yourself, right? And so that's, that takes time. And then they, they start to be freer in sort of how they approach that. I also, and this is a sort of weird policy, um, I, I know, but for those weekly reflections, I tell them they get credit for doing them, but I tell them that I don't necessarily have to read it. So they're allowed to turn it in and say, I don't want you to read this. Um, so if they need that space to like complain about something that's happened in class or complain about me or, you know, they, they like it, it is their space. And so they can turn it in and we work on the honor system that they say, you know, this, this thing that I've uploaded <laughs> into our learning management system is my reflection. I promise. And I say, okay, I'm going to give you credit. I'm not going to read it. I promise. Um, really just for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think that that is, that has been really good for some students who need it as that space. Um, it's also really effective because I'm, I, in my position, 
either my previous position when I was non-tenure track faculty in the rhetoric and writing studies program, I was working with mostly first and second year students. Now um, I teach the um, like teaching in the writing center class for graduate students who are working in the writing center. And most, most of them, not every single one, but most of them are first semester graduate students when they're taking the class. So again, they're going through that like really, really stressful beginning of a new experience. Um, and so I think having a place to kind of just un- unwind and unload. And I, I mean, I've heard from so many students, like that is the number one assignment I learned through the surveys I ask at the end and also through students who just tell me, I thought that was going to be the dumbest assignment and it was the most valuable. And that just happens over the course of them doing it. But when I ask them to reflect on assignments, I'm super, um, super directive at the beginning of the semester and then less so as the semester goes on. And I tell them that I say, I'm going to give you really specific questions. They're directly related to the assignment or to something I've asked them to do in relation to it. And then by the end of, and I say like, by the end of the semester, I'm expecting you to come up with your own questions to answer because that's part of the learning process, right? Is like, I, I want to help you get better at reflection, but ultimately the reflection is for you. So it should belong to you. And I try to talk to faculty in the same way that, um, Reflection is great for, I mean, I, I can give people articles all day long to read, right? I can show them all the scholarship in the world. And there's plenty of it that talks about the value of reflection and learning and in a transfer of knowledge and in all of these areas. Um, that doesn't necessarily fix the really practical issues that faculty have in terms of right. the amount of content they're trying to teach or the fact that they're not paid enough for their labor. And so thinking, and this goes back to the portfolio conversation, like, how can you integrate this? How can you, where can you make space? Where are there things that you're doing now that are taking up too much of your time and aren't actually valuable mm-hmm. to you or to students that might be replaced by reflection that could potentially simplify your work? Because I personally find reflection much easier to evaluate than, um, you know, like the 10 page right. essay. And also, like, where can you add it in in ways that will be valuable to students and not necessarily take more of their time, but make the time that they're spending yeah. more beneficial? And this conversation about labor is important. And I, I was really excited to have the opportunity to join one of your sessions at this summer's uh, ABLE um, summer meeting and learn more about the ABLE task force. Um, and I think there was actually a published piece. I pulled it up because I wanted to mention it while we were talking today. Let me see if I still have. You were part of a article that was published in the International Journal of ePortfolio around um, ethics and ePortfolios developing Oh, digital ethics and e-portfolios, developing principles, strategies, and scenarios. And that was back in um, 2021 and was part of this um, kind of larger conversation around the field of e-portfolios and the connection with ethics. Um, And I know one of the uh, kind of sub areas within that is this kind of ethics around the the labor connection to e portfolios for those that may be 
implementing the various e-portfolio projects on campus, but all the way down to the labor of the faculty and the students that are um, utilizing them, whether they're utilizing them for teaching or whether they're utilizing them as part of the assignments or projects that they give students and the time that students invest in them. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. And I know that um, you're going to be participating in another Dedication Scholars conversation that's that's just focused on that, but I would love for you to share a little bit about that today as well. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I'll try to uh, keep it on the explanatory level and we can go deeper in the other conversation um, with other members of, of the task force. But that is, we, we started, I think, in 2019, but we're really interested in um, developing some principles around digital ethics and e-portfolios, um, bringing a lot of different interests to the table. Um, obviously, like a lot of people are interested in privacy and how we're protecting students. Um, I was coming at it sort of from a digital literacy perspective in the sense that I think one thing that we don't do a great job of um, at least here, and I'm maybe there, I, I know different schools have different kind of approaches to this and some have focused a lot more, but just um, a sort of like basic uh, or baseline digital literacy and making sure that students have that when they leave. And people talk a lot about students are, are you know, digital natives and they're just born in this space and they use it all the time. Well, I would regularly assign a PDF and walk into the classroom and all the students would have their laptops turned sideways because they didn't know how to rotate the PDF, right? And that's a sort of basic skill um, that I think just, you know, a real quick story that shows that they don't know how to do everything. But the biggest thing is yeah. to just ask, right? If something feels unnatural or it feels like it should be easier to do in a digital space, like, Google it, right? Look it up. Look it up is the kind of like quick. Um, so I was I was sort of interested in the principles from that perspective, and that um, led into like kind of exploring that idea, right? Of um, why um, why students get um, sort of depicted as so familiar with digital with everything digital, um, but don't necessarily like develop that skill set over time. And that was sort of where labor came in to um, the question, right? Because the same is sort of true of faculty. It's, I mean, faculty are using technology all the time to do all kinds of things. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're just comfortable just adding new, right. new software, right? To their, um, their sort of teaching toolkit. And so I got really interested in in the work that that required and what it was doing to people um, because I was teaching students how to use a new platform, but I was also teaching faculty how to use a new platform. And as that was happening, um, I was experiencing a lot of resistance um, to the idea that you could approach it playfully. Um, not so much from my students, but from other students and from other faculty. And, and I I sort of learned again, like, like on the job, right on the job training that, oh, students are, um, they're sort of taking on the attitude that faculty are bringing into the classroom when they're introducing the new technology. So if faculty are introducing it as just oh, this new, really hard thing, but we all have to do because it's a requirement um, for whatever reason, then students are doing the same thing. And there's, they're, you know, they're adopting that same approach to it 
and that's kind of the end of the conversation. And so like that attitudinal shift that I saw just made me really curious and, and, and drove me in this direction of like learning about emotional labor, right? Which is kind of, I feel like far afield from where I started when I joined the digital ethics task force. Um, but that's, that was the kind of turn that my interest took. And maybe again, I'm like the broken, the reflection broken record. Um, but I was really interested in this idea that technology, that using technology and learning technology requires work from people. Um, and that some of that work is really obvious, like when we're sitting in the room and I'm showing you how to literally do something, right? Um, it's very procedural. But then some of it is much more invisible and abstract. Um, it's happening in the background. It's happening in ways that we don't easily identify. And because of that, nobody's mm. sort of getting credit for it, right? Like students aren't getting graded or assessed or evaluated on um, that part of their work and neither are faculty. And so that's that's sort of where my interests have turned now. And I don't have any any real answers at this point, except that I think it's something that we'll need to be more attuned to in the future because I, you know, people talk a lot about information overload um, and and how there's just too much information coming at us all the time and we can't process all of it. Um, and they talk about cognitive load um, is another, you know, way of sort of thinking through how much can your brain process at a time. But oftentimes when we're talking about cognitive load, we're also still talking about information, like the substance or the content of something rather than the actions of interacting with it and, and sort of, um, I don't know, like acculturating our lives to it. Right. And so that's the part that I'm interested in and not at all an expert in. So I can't say anything smart about it, except to say that I think it's going to matter more and more. And I wonder how much of some of the, the sort of, um, I don't know. We, we've yeah. been calling it like the COVID exhaustion um, on our campus, but like the this this idea that um, we have this return we have this return to normal. We are fully back on campus campus, um, but now we're in addition to doing all the things we did before the pandemic, we're also doing all the things we did during when everybody was at home, and so now we have all these new technologies and all these new practices, um, and in some ways that's made us a much more inclusive space, which is great. Um, and it's made a lot of the things we offer more accessible to a lot more people. I do a ton of Zoom appointments for graduate students who could never come to the Writing yeah. Center face-to-face -face yeah. because they don't live here. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, it's a great thing that we can offer that service. It also just adds a whole other layer to um to the work that people are doing. And I really saw that with working with graduate students um, who had been trained during the pandemic to work in the writing center. And all of a sudden they realized they were going to come back face to face. And they were like, oh my God, I suddenly feel like I don't know how to do my job. Um, like I learned everything I learned, I learned how to do online. And now I'm going to have to like talk to people face to face. It's a totally different modality of interacting. And I don't feel trained to do that. And so that was a lot more work for them suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I'm, I'm very excited as um, the results of the, the survey that the ABLE task force has um, 
shared out as those results start to go in. And I think that these are very important conversations. And you're right, so many changes were implemented so quickly. Um, I mean, across society, but we saw it most deeply within higher ed <laughs> in our particular roles that um, an enormous amount of um, learning had to happen very quickly in order to help continue keeping that going. And um, yeah, the shift to you know what I think will never really be normal, but trying to now grapple with the the new way of working and teaching that we adapted to and now trying to figure out, you know, what that bridge is to what we're doing now, um, which for some people is still a combination of virtual and in person, um, but some are fully back in the classroom. So there's just so much to consider. And I think, you know, as a collective taking time to reflect on that and um, making note of, you know, what elements were really successful for us, what elements did we feel like we faltered in, but would like to continue down that path? Um, where are we making the best use of our time? Um, that uh, emotional labor costs that you mentioned, um, the whole human experience that we spoke about earlier, they're all intersected in what we're managing at work and outside of work and, and how those uh, interrelate. So I'm, I'm, really excited to see the results of that study um, when it is done. And I'll be sure to include the link to the survey in the show notes when we um, publish this episode so that those that might be interested in contributing to it can can easily get to it. And um, we'll be sure to do that in the, the other podcasts that you'll be participating in with other members of the task force as well. Thank you so much. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's. I, I'm really excited to see what we find. Well, Sarah, we have reached the end of our time together today. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about you. And I'm excited to share this with our community. I think there's so much that you're doing uh, within your institution for faculty and students that others will be very excited to learn about and we'll have to continue to stay in touch thanks kelly appreciate it bye this concludes our conversation to hear our next episode be sure to subscribe to digication scholars conversations on youtube itunes spotify or your favorite podcast app the digication scholars conversation series is brought to you by digication a technology platform powering the most innovative ePortfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.